All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of podcast Natural Awakening, a podcast about, well, awakening and naturalism, um, science, other such things. Um, and today, uh, returning guest, uh, Ken Podine. And uh, for those of you who haven't already seen the, the first episode, which I recommend you go back and check, maybe you could just say a few words about yourself. Okay. Yeah, I've been doing Buddhism for about 25 years now, and I was given the title of Kempo, which is roughly equivalent to a PhD in Buddhist studies uh, by my master, His Holiness Kinchen Lama Rinpoche, a number of years ago. And uh, even before that, he had asked me to begin teaching, and so I started doing that and my background was as a professor and doing online classes among other things and so as a part of that I was able to start developing some online classes for our sangha and for others and we had students from all over the world as a part of that and so I've been actively involved in all of that uh, teaching classes leading meditation sessions and uh, I wrote one book, I'm working on another one, but uh, a book called Innate Happiness that was developed to, originally to use for my classes. Uh, it's called The Essentials of Tibetan Buddhism, a series of classes which takes people from very beginning, basic history kind of things, all the way through the most advanced teachings of Dzogchen and the Nyingma tradition. And so that's that's a part of what I do. I have other individual students um, in different places around the world and uh, help them as best I can uh, in their own practice, some of the issues that they may have and so forth. All right. Thanks, Dean. And uh, to anyone listening, I wholeheartedly recommend the book. It's it's really, really fantastic. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and thank you. Thank you for writing it, Dean. Um, today, the, the subject is... Uh, Nundro, am I pronouncing that roughly? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a little tricky sometimes because it has a silent G and an NG, and uh, so that kind of throws people off a little bit. But yeah, Nundro is right. So Nundro, as uh, I've understood it from your writing and other sources, uh, is uh, they're a set of varied, uh, but, you know, roughly classed together uh, preliminary practices before engaging in uh, more advanced uh, tantric practices that maybe people are are more familiar with uh because they're i guess flashier um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and uh i guess where we'd like to start is with the, the history so if you could just take it away dean okay yeah there really isn't a whole lot of information historically on nindro and how it developed uh, one of the things that we're always taught is that it all started with the Buddha himself, which, of course, if you look back, you'll find some connections there. But the connection has to do primarily with refuge. And I just ran across something the other day that was giving a list of the different ways in which uh, people would become a uh, a monk uh, at the time of the Buddha. And one of those ways was taking refuge. Uh, but there were nine other ways as well. So that it wasn't just one fixed way, uh, particularly in the early part of the tradition. And the actual set of practices that we know as Nindro today, uh, the earliest part of that came about around the 1400s. It's strictly a Tibetan Buddhist form of practice. Uh, it's divided into two parts of that, and so there's what we call the common nindro and the uncommon nindro, and the common nindro includes things that uh, are found in all of the Buddhist traditions, and so even though it's in a form that we don't necessarily see in the other traditions, the content of it certainly is there. But then when we go on to the second set, which is referred to as the uncommon nindro, then those are pretty unique to, they have some similarities to practices in other parts of the Buddhist tradition, but they are pretty unique to the Vajrayana or Tibetan Buddhism um, as a part of that. And so we see different uh, forms, different texts that developed 
particularly in, in the different lineages, the four main lineages within Tibetan Buddhism. Um, so uh, with the, the Nyingma tradition that I'm primarily involved with, the Kagyu tradition, Saki tradition, the Galut tradition, um, and we could add the, the Bumpo tradition to that as well. And so each of those have their own approach to that. They're very similar to each other. The basic part, basic content, basic practices are pretty much the same, but they tweak it a little here or there, maybe add another practice in someplace and so forth. Uh, so I, I made a few notes uh, for myself here. So one of the things within the Nyingma, probably the most popular version within the Nyingma tradition is the found in the Longchen Ningtek, which is a whole collection of different things. It's probably the most influential of all of the teachings related to the Nyingma tradition per se, but it's certainly not the only one. And then the words of my perfect teacher, um, which was actually written by one of the students of the author of the, the uh, uh, Ning Tech, uh, Patrol Rinpoche. And so he has a book that's probably the most popular book out there, particular for Nyingma, but it also is often read by people in the other traditions as well. And he goes into a lot of detail about that. Some of my students think that it's a little bit harsh <laughs> in his approach. And it's interesting because I read a biography one time about his teacher and his teacher thought that in general, he was kind of harsh and, and strict in, in his approach to things. So um, sometimes people react to it, respond to it in that way. But uh, we don't have to. <laughs> we can certainly look at it uh, more broadly and look at the symbolism involved and understand the context and the environment and the person and all of those kind of things and, and uh, work with it. Uh, so those are the main things in the Nyingma and Kagyu. There's a book called The Jewel Ornament of Liberation, which is the primary source of uh, the Nindro in the Kagyu tradition. Um, then in the Geluks, they use uh, the Lam Rim, which is a, a tradition that uh, basically covers their entire path as a part of that. So their Nindro is built into that as a part of it. Um, and they do add a few other topics than what we see in some of the other versions uh, as a part of that. So they've got some um, practices, is one called uh, Vajradaka, uh, where you're visualizing and uh, this uh, particular deity, if you will, is visualized in that way and consumed. Seeds, which represent the negative kinds of things. And so getting rid of those, as well as uh, there's water bowl offerings. There's a number of offerings, and offerings are a part of the standard Nundro, but this is one particular one that is sometimes included, sometimes not included in, in the way that that part of the tradition is actually taught. And then uh, they have one where they do tzatzas, uh, which are little usually clay figures that are uh, kind of like little relief sculptures almost of a some kind of a figure. Um, and so they're clay or plaster images of some kind of a Buddha form that is a part of the practice. And then the Samaya Vajra Mantra, which I'm not sure exactly what that is. I haven't studied that before. I don't know. I couldn't find anything specific on the Sakya tradition. Um, so other than within the general context that they're all pretty much the same. So I just assume that they may have some unique characteristics that I'm just not aware of. But the basic idea that I think is important is part of this. You know, why why do something like this, Nindro? And, and I have to confess that when when I was starting out, I wasn't particularly interested in Nindro. I didn't know anything about it to speak of or anything. But uh, eventually, uh, my my current teacher came along and uh, he convinced me that it was a good idea to do. And so I started doing it and I, I fell in love with it. I, I think it is a wonderful practice. And in fact, uh, it's one of those things that uh, even though it is labeled as a preliminary practice, uh, we are told that it can be the complete practice. And so it's, it's far more important than it sometimes uh, 
characterized, let's say. So it is um, preliminary, but it is it can be preliminary in different ways. Uh, the basic approach is that it is preliminary to the other practices. However, another way to look at it is being preliminary to today's practices. That's actually the way I do it. I do I do Nundra practice every day. The first part of my practice is doing Nundra in a short version. It's not a, a real long one, but it's a reminder, so it doesn't have to be real long. And I do that. And then I go from there into my regular meditation, whatever practices that I happen to be doing that particular day. So a little bit of history, a little bit of other information about it, but uh, it's a good place to start. All right. Thanks. Thanks for that, that brief, brief overview. Um, maybe we could, you've already given a little, but maybe you could say a little bit more about, you know, its function within kind of the, the structure of a, a tantric or Vajrayana and then even mm-hmm. like a, a Dzogchen path uh, towards, towards liberation. What, what function does it serve within this, that, that structure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Well, preliminary practices kind of describes it in a way, but just as I pointed out, there are different ways that it can be preliminary, uh, but it's sometimes kind of undersold, I think, in terms of the importance of it, uh, because it is very, very functional in terms of how it helps us in terms of learning, in terms of developing our skills, our knowledge, our understanding of the the more advanced practices that come along as a part of that. And so, you know, the two sets that I mentioned before, the uncommon one, those are a series of contemplations that are done. There's four, it's referred to as the four thoughts that turn the mind. And so the purpose of it is changing our mind from the way that we typically view what we call samsara, ordinary life, and transforming that into uh, something that is a very special kind of thing that we often ultimately refer to as enlightenment or liberation or realization or awakening as different terms that are used for it. There's slightly different meanings, but all referring basically to the same thing. And so we spend time doing those kind of things and really examining those and our views of them and how we feel about them and so forth. Um, and a lot of those things are things that maybe aren't as important today for us. For example, one of them is impermanence. And um, think about it in terms of the 14th century or even before that time, you think about impermanence, things seem to stay the same all the time, over and over and over and forever. Um, but in our life, we talk about change. You know, the only thing that doesn't change is change itself. So it's like we're so used to that that it seems kind of unimportant. But at the same time, we need to pay attention to that as a fact. We don't. Yes, we're aware of change and the, the fact that everything is changing, but we always usually don't think about it. And so this requires that we actually think about that for a while, contemplate that, the different forms of change, whether it's basic things like the changes of the season or the change from day to night or other changes in our life and uh, all kinds of different aspects of the changes in the way things are. Uh, and that we experience, you know, the house gets built and a number of years later, somebody tears it down and builds a new one or they remodel it or things like that. And we start going through all of the different things in our life and viewing the way that they change in one way or another. And so we get a much broader view of the importance of that uh, aspect of change as a part of that. And that's a foundational concept that just embody is embodied in in so many other things within Tibetan Buddhism that it's a, a very important thing to be conscious of, not just yeah I understand yeah change happens. <laughs> uh, so it's a very important aspect in terms of that. Um, and so some of the other things in the contemplations, one of them has to do with karma, cause and effect. Um, there's also different ways of understanding that. Um, basically, karma is uh, linked with reincarnation or rebirth. 
And so that is an important uh, part of the tradition. Some people take that as a very literal interpretation that uh, uh, karma is sometimes even described as being seeds like seeds of a plant that then are stored in the alaya consciousness, which means storehouse consciousness. And so they're stored away like they're in some kind of a storage silo of seeds. And uh, then those seeds depending on certain uh, conditions, ripen in our lifetime. And so if we do something negative or harmful to somebody, then that's going to come back to us in a similar fashion at some point in this life or possibly in, a, in another life. Uh, we have to be able to explain why good things happen to good people and bad things happen, uh, or bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Sometimes I think karma is a way of helping to do that. Uh, and so that's a that's a part of understanding that relationship and ethics is really really important in terms of understanding Buddhism. Um, when we talk about the activities that we do, uh, you know, the, the goal being to overcome uh, these different forms of suffering in our lives. And so if we're trying to overcome those. In, uh, in order to achieve some form of liberation or enlightenment or something like that, it's very much about action. And karma literally means actions, although as you, as you get into it, you find it's not just any action, it's intentional actions. And that's an important aspect of that as well. And so understanding that, but the Buddha also talked about it, not in terms of reincarnation, the way we usually think about reincarnation, but he talked about it in terms of just this life and rebirth uh, could be moment to moment reincarnation. So what's going on this moment and what's going on the next moment uh, is a form of a reincarnation or a rebirth in our life. And so we can look at it that way as well. And, and because we're trying to overcome these, uh, clashes is a term that's sometimes used, all these different forms of suffering or, uh, the, the word dukkha is often translated as suffering, but in actuality, it's a much broader term than what we usually think of when we think of suffering. Uh, usually when we think of suffering, we think of it as, as physical pain, mental anguish kinds of things, and it certainly includes those, but it really, uh, the word itself really has a broader kind of a meaning like disenchantment, uh, dissatisfaction, uh, those kind of things, discontent. And so it does have those uh, broader aspects. And part of doing the Nindra practice is understanding that some of the different aspects of that, the different kinds of karma that there are and the different sources of those and the, the ethical positions that are part of the Buddhist tradition and so forth. So there's like the five lay precepts, which the monastics also take as a part of that. But um it is also for lay practitioners uh, to take as a part of things like don't kill, don't lie, don't steal, and so forth. And uh, five basic things you find in almost any religious tradition as a part of that. Uh, but it's important if we're going to achieve liberation, we have to stop doing the things that are causing all of these problems in our lives. And so ethical behavior is really the primary one. Uh, everything else is really ways of helping support ethical behavior. Uh, ethical actions in our lives and how we interact with other people. You know, ethics really has nothing to do with ourselves per se. It has to do with how we interact, how we relate to other people. You know, lying wouldn't matter at all if it wasn't lying to someone or uh, killing wouldn't matter at all, except that we're killing someone or something and so forth. So uh, all of those are very uh, important. So that's part of this interdependent aspect of uh, looking at uh, how we engage in our lives, how we engage with other people and as a part of that. Uh, another one in, that we might contemplate is uh, death. Uh, we don't, in most religious traditions, do a whole lot of that. We and a lot of times we kind of want to brush it aside and we don't want to talk about it, we want to think about it and so forth. 
But death happens. It's going to happen to all of us. And so part of the Buddhist tradition is helping to familiarize ourselves with that. And, of course, then it gets fitted in with the idea of reincarnation and and karma as a part of that. And so as we look at it, the the Buddhist, the traditional Buddhist view is that um, when we build up these seeds of karma, that those then get carried forward into a next life. Um, one of the things I like to point out, however, is unlike the way that is usually described as into our next life, it's not actually our next life. It's somebody else's next life in terms of the physical manifestation. Uh, what gets transferred, according to the theory, is that it's our alaya consciousness that gets transferred. So it's actually that silo of those seeds of karma that's getting transferred and and perhaps some memories of past lives and that kind of thing that's a controversial kind of a, a topic but uh, all of those things are getting transferred into somebody else's body it's not our body anymore it's somebody else's so one of the ways to view that is what do we want to pass on to somebody else you know, how do we want to affect them and so uh, whether you look at that literally or whether you look at that metaphorically, I think it's an important principle to keep in mind as we live our lives and interact with other people and so forth. So we go for, through these four contemplations as a part of that to really prepare us for the whole purpose of what everything else is as a part of that. And then the second part of it is those uh, uncommon practices and this is really the main core of the practice and so the first one of those is taking refuge and so we take refuge in the buddha the dharma and the sangha most excellent um, and so there are different forms of refuge that we can do that's called the outer refuge and then there's also an inner refuge um, in well, let me go back to the first one first before i take off on the second one the first one uh when we say we take refuge in the buddha the dharma the sangha the buddha is pretty obvious we take refuge in the buddha the dharma if you're not familiar with the term is the the teachings of the buddha and then the sangha if you're not familiar with that one is the, the the people that are involved, the followers, the disciples, and so forth that are involved in it. And there's different levels of Sangha. Uh, we talk about it, for example, we have a small group here in Tucson, Arizona, and so that is a Sangha. But sometimes when we have a, a Lama come in and do teachings, we'll have other people come in that are not part of our regular Sangha, but they are for the purpose of that teaching. And so that particular group is also a Sangha. Um, all Buddhist practitioners are also considered to be a Sangha. All of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are considered to be a Sangha. All of the uh, monastic both, uh, monks and nuns are considered to be a Sangha and so forth. So there's there's lots of different ways that that term is used. But that's all kind of the outer view of that. And then there's a more of an inner view where it's the Guru Yidam and Dikini. And so the Guru is our own teacher. The Buddha is not around anymore. And so our own teacher plays the role of the Buddha in our lives and our understanding and learning and so forth. That's part of that. Uh, very important to have a relationship with that Guru. It's sometimes harder to do in our culture than it was in Tibet, where you had people around close by that you could go to. Most communities and villages had some kind of a little um, temple with at least one person there that could help them, teach them, and so forth, at least at the, the community level, not necessarily the level of the monastic community. Um, the larger uh, ones would have uh, the, the large monasteries and the, and the very elaborate teachings and, and those kind of things to teach people at higher levels of understanding. Um, but we would uh, have a guru, have a teacher. And so that's important. And like I said, it's a little more difficult in this culture. So we do things online sometimes, especially with COVID right now. Um, and um, we can get teachings, you know, any of us can get teachings from the Dalai Lama right now because he does a lot of things online. He's not traveling much anymore other than just around in India a little bit. But um, so that's one of the changes that 
that we are seeing happening is the use of technology as a part of that learning experience. And, uh, and I'm pretty open to that. Um, the Dalai Lama seems to uh, be very supportive of it. There are still some, a lot actually, of uh, Lamas who grew up in a more traditional approach. And even though they often use the technology, they're only willing to go so far. Um, part of the, the Vajrayana tradition, that's not really a part necessarily of what we're talking about today, but in the context of technology, is the idea of um, receiving teachings specifically from the Lama. And a part of that is receiving a, what is called the transmission, an oral transmission. And so they read whatever the text is that uh, is being uh, uh, taught, uh, set up for our doing as a practice. And so some people won't do those oral transmissions transmissions online other people will so that's one of the changes another thing that becomes involved in that whole process before learning to to do especially the more advanced practices has to do with uh, it, an empowerment and an empowerment is a ritual that you go through to enable you or authorize you formally to be able to do that particular practice. And again, there are a lot of them that won't do those kind of things online. There are a few of them to do. The Dalai Lama actually does some of his online. One of my uh, other teachers, uh, one of my other gurus, uh, Garchan Rinpoche, also does some things uh, online from time to time. So there's there's kind of a mix out there, but I kind of like what the Dalai Lama has said about this. We need to learn to be 21st century Buddhists. And so um, using technology was what he was referring to as a part of that. So uh, I like to see that. I think it can be very helpful to people, particularly where a lot of the, the students that we've had online in our classes are people that don't have access to a teacher. Um, either because they live in a remote place or there just isn't a, a sangha or there's not one at least that they're happy with or would like to get involved with because there are and fit is a very important aspect of that. So all of that uh, is a part of that refuge. And so we have the guru, then we have the yidam. The yidam is uh, a word is usually translated as deity, which is an unfortunate translation because the word deity literally means God. And in Buddhism, uh, we don't have gods in that sense. We do use the word gods and talk about god realms and so forth, but we're talking about traditional approaches to various gods and, for example, the Hindu tradition or other religious traditions that uh, have gods and spirits and so forth. Uh, and so the yidam is actually a Buddha form, if you will, kind of a phrase that I like to use for that. And so um, uh, in some of the advanced practices that the Nindra is helping us prepare for, that's part of what we are preparing for is to be able to do practices with these yidams or uh, Buddha forms. Um, and so, well, don't want to talk too much about that right now. I could go off and we could talk for a couple hours about that one. But um, that, is, that is the second one in that uh, inner form of refuge. And then the third one is the Dakini, which is a, uh, a somewhat mythical kind of a figure. Uh, although there's different levels and different understandings of what a Dakini really is, it translates to something like a sky goer or sky dancer or something like that. But they're generally uh, messengers. And so they're giving us messages that are to be helpful to us, although they have a reputation for being a little armor sometimes and uh, throwing us curves and uh, they can set us astray as a part of that. Um so lots of different things about them, but primarily they are focused on trying to find ways of helping us. Um, they may be challenging us in some way and so forth. And so those are described. Sometimes there's another category that gets substituted in there for the Dakini, which is a protector. And so there are a set of Buddha forms, uh, sometimes Bodhisattva forms that are there to uh, help protect 
us and protect the Dharma and so forth. And so they might be included in, in the three or they put it all together. And so you have four uh, as a part of that. And then there are secret forms of that as well. So we look at secret forms and um, there are different versions, but one of those is looking at the three Buddha bodies, if you will, the uh, kaya means body. And so there is the Nimanakaya, which is a physical manifestation like the historical Buddha. And then there's the Sambhokakaya, which is a more kind of cosmic view, uh, which is the way that we do the, the Yedam or, or deity yoga practice kinds of things that, uh, where we visualize and imagine the, the deity in that form and even becomes a form of a role play, if you will, uh, which is actually one of the strengths, I think, of that particular practice. And then, uh, another aspect is the Dharmakaya. Uh, so the Dharma body, it translates as truth body, but, um, and it's sometimes depicted visually as uh, a, a Buddha form, but in reality, it's, it's, it doesn't have a body. It's beyond that. It's a concept uh, that transcends a body altogether, but it's still illustrated in that same way. And then there's a fourth level too, as a part of refuge. Um, but that one's very, it's simple, but complicated. <laughs> and that is our own innate Buddha nature. We are all said to have had, uh, to have uh, Buddha nature, which is what enables us to actually uh, become a Buddha at some point. And so this heart essence, if you will, that we have enables us to then um, uh, do these practices, overcome these obscurations, purify any negative karma that we may have from the past and so forth to then achieve that stage in our practice. So refuge is a very important one. The second one is bodhicitta. Bodhicitta usually is translated as the mind of enlightenment, or the better probably would be the mind of awakening. I'm not particularly fond of the word enlightenment because it actually comes from the age of enlightenment in Europe, which has quite a different meaning than than the way that we usually think of it. but that idea, and it has two basic parts. There is a part which is called relative and a part which is called ultimate. And so in the relative, it's divided into two further parts. The first one being your intention and the second one being action. And so as we look at that idea, what we are is the, the primary purpose of bodhicitta or uh, being, is becoming a bodhisattva, which is to say that uh, we want to become someone whose focus is on other people, not just ourselves. It doesn't mean we ignore ourselves, but it means that we put a lot of emphasis on trying to help all beings achieve enlightenment, not just ourselves as a part of that. So that's one of the fundamental principles involved in that. And so uh, one of the things that is used as a part of that are the four immeasurables. And so the the four immeasurables are loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And so we study those, we examine those as a part of that. And there are other, other kinds of practices associated with the, the Bodhisattva path. And, but it's setting the intention in the beginning, but then we have to actually act it out. We have to do it. it it's, it's well and good to have good intentions, but if you don't actually do something about it, then that's not necessarily quite so helpful. So we have to act. And then the ultimate aspect of it is more of a philosophical view. Uh, but the idea of the philosophical view is that it kind of folds back into, so we bring those things together. It bring, comes back into our actions, but it's an understanding of a particular way of seeing and understanding, but it's, I guess I shouldn't use the word particular because actually philosophical, historically what happened is that a bunch of different philosophical views have evolved out of that uh, in understanding that. But the way the Buddha originally described the idea was uh, uh, 
sometimes called emptiness, another word that I think is not a very good word in terms of trying to understand things because we think of emptiness in a very different way than that. Um, but in, he talked about emptiness as being a lack of a particular characteristic. So it's not like it doesn't have any characteristics or it's complete void, but it's lack of any one particular thing. And so uh, he would talk about it, for example, as uh, a lack of having the characteristic of being permanent. Nothing is permanent. Everything is impermanent. And that's an, another important principle in understanding. Everything changes. Uh, so that is is one of the, the things that we have to understand. Now, some of the philosophical views uh, changed, became more elaborate. There's also the emptiness is often used in relation to some of the forms of meditation. And so then it becomes empty, becomes more of a state of mind, if you will, uh, where uh, we can even achieve a state ultimately of just kind of a, almost like a void of uh, no thought. Um, I think that gets overplayed a little bit. I was talking with Alan Wallace one time and he told me that you could probably count on one hand the number of people that uh, can actually do that without any thoughts for a period of as many as uh, four hours. So, um, and if you think about it, our mind is, is not like a light switch. You just, it's always going on in some form or another, uh, whether we're aware of it or not is a different matter. But, um, part of the advanced teachings allow that to happen. And we begin to see in a way that uh, we don't have to have a totally blank mind as a part of it, like a void, but that there is a different way of doing that where the focus is just on being aware of whatever happens to be going on in your mind as a a part of that um, and not consumed by what's actually going on in the environment and that kind of thing, but rather focused you know, being aware of that, but also focused on what's actually happening in your mind. Because all the things that we do, the other things we think, say, do, are actually happening in our mind, experience in our mind. And so that's a very important part of that. And so the Bodhisattva, and then uh, we also have uh, the, the third one in that particular group is uh, uh, offerings. There are no, excuse me. Purification. And so there's a practice called Vajrasattva. Vajrasattva is the Buddha of purification. And so there's a very specific kind of practice that is done uh, where we do a visualization and and then the stream of purifying nectar comes down through the body physically it's imagined that way uh, coming down and washing out all of this negative stuff uh, that is uh, in our life in one form or another all that negative karma is considered to be washed out and so forth um, all the uh, negative tendencies that we have had in the past habits and so forth also are washed away and, and so we are purified and it helps purify us to get us ready to move on into the more advanced kinds of practices. Now, some people look at that and they think, well, you know, that's that's a cute little thing to do. But in fact, when you start doing that and you really do it seriously, it begins to really change the way that you see yourself. And it really does feel like those things. You're changing your your brain as a part of that. You're creating new neural pathways in your brain. Uh, as a part of doing that, and as a result, um, that actually does have an effect more than just the the symbolism involved in that. So it's a very effective process in that way. And so after we have purified ourselves, then we go on to the next one, which is to make offerings. So now that we are in our pure form, we go ahead and we make general offerings to the Buddhas, uh, and it's done in different ways. There's lots of different forms of doing that. Uh, generally speaking, it is referred to as a mandala offering. And there are several ways of doing that. There are ways where you have these uh, rings and fill them up with rice or precious stones or whatever it is. And it's called a 37 uh, point practice because there are 37 different offerings made as you build up these rings to the top. And then there's a piece that's put on the top of that. And then you repeat that over and over again. 
And there is also one that is a seven point, which kind of a simplification of that that is done just on a single single plate where you have seven different things that are done as a part of that. Or it can be done in a mandala, hint mandala, which looks like this, which is also a seven point. Sometimes it's called five point, uh, but it represents the, the two fingers in the center here represent Mount Meru and then uh, part of the, the mythical view of the universe in in the, the Buddhist tradition uh, has uh, Mount Meru as the center of the universe and then four continents around it. So where I don't know if I can do this when you can see it, but the other fingers are uh, together. And so it creates four little points around it, symbolic of the continent. So what we're offering is actually the entire universe, uh, symbolically speaking. And so there's that, or there's other kinds of offerings that uh, we can do as a part of it. Um, a lot of people on in a lot of temples and so forth and their shrines have eight offering bowls um, that are actually based on the idea of eight different offerings associated with the, the Indian tradition when somebody would come as a guest. So you would give them water for drinking and give them water for washing off the dust and stuff. They'll stop from having walked because that was mostly what they did when they moved from one place to another was through walking. And uh, other, so there's eight different things that uh, can be done as you go through as a part of that. So we make the offerings. And then finally, we get to the real heart of the Nindra practice, which is called Guru Yoga. And so, as I mentioned before, it's important to have this relationship with the Lama. And so that's a part of what we do visually. And so we imagine um, it's called uh, Guru Rinpoche or Padmasambhava. Uh, Padmasambhava means lotus born. There's a, a story about him being born in an actual lotus on a lake and so forth. And uh, he's a key figure in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Um, uh, he, along with a couple of other key figures, uh, were invited to Tibet to help uh, build the very first monastery at Sanye in Tibet. And so he was a part of that, and I won't go into his history or any of that because it's uh, pretty mythical and magical, and, and uh, as well as uh, lots of very... Uh, uh, beneficial ideas that come out of uh, the things associated or attributed to him as as a part of the Vajrayana tradition. Um, but we do that practice in a way that what we do is we focus on him as the guru. And so at the time we're doing it, we're focusing on him. And then uh, we recite a mantra as a part of that visualization and so forth. And then we dissolve all of that into emptiness. And we get back to that word again. And so then we actually do the meditation at that point. So that can actually become the main part of our practice and the, uh, w- along with the other parts that I've described there can become the practice and it's, it's said it can be all you really need in order to attain full enlightenment. So it's very important part of that and it helps us connect with because we can also visualize our own Lama as Padmasambhava. And so we make that connection as we're doing the practice with our own Lama and reinforce that as well. So all of these are the, the main practices, and at least in a summary way, the, the kind of things that are done in, in the actual practices of those uh, various things. Excellent. Thanks, thanks so much, Gene. I think uh, it's it's good to have, you know, kind of a, a more informed take on these subjects because I'm I'm aware in the Buddhist circles I've traveled in, um, you know, Dzogchen and the highest teachings are very right. popular. And, you know, mm-hmm. I felt the pull to that, to that myself, but it's, it's, so like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, imagining that you can take a helicopter ride up to the peak of the mountain without mm-hmm. having to climb it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, you know, perhaps, perhaps a bit, uh, naive, although there is this kind of, you know, Dzogchen or, you know, Vajrayana is kind of an imminent tradition. You know, mm-hmm. the, the goal is in some sense already present. Uh, yeah. But for most of us, anyway, <laughs> I imagine there's quite a lot of work to to realize that. 
Yeah. Well, the Vajrayana tradition, and when we look at it from as outsiders, it looks like a lot of magic and myth. And to some extent, that's actually true. Uh, but as we learn about the way that it was viewed by the, the great masters and so forth, it really has a very different kind of an approach and view and understanding the depth of it and how it really helps manifest in our lives and helps us to uh, overcome the same goals that the Guru was striving for. It's just a different path is all. And it's not appropriate for everyone, certainly. Um, but it is something that can be extremely beneficial to appropriate students. All right. And, uh, hmm. uh, yeah, before, before we uh, close out here, uh, maybe we could say some things, uh, about the different varieties of, of Nindro. The most sure. famous version, which I think most people find quite forbidding involves, you know, many, many thousands, a hundred thousand, uh, yes. in fact, more uh, repetitions of various actions. Yes. Uh, the tradition has become, and this was not the way that it was in the beginning, but it uh, has become so that those last five that I mentioned, um, as we're doing those of the taking the refuge, the bodhicitta, the um, uh, purification practice, the offerings, and then the guru yoga. Uh, the at least a key part of each one of those usually associated with a mantra or a, or a verse that you would recite are done 100,000 times each, which means 500,000 repetitions. And as a part of that, the refuge part, you also would do a full prostration down on the floor uh, as a part of that. So that's 100,000 of those. Uh, that takes a lot of time. Um, there are some approaches that look at it in terms of number of hours of each one that you would do, and they add up to somewhere around 1,200 to uh, 1,500 hours. Uh, that works out depending on, you know, if you're doing it full time, the way somebody in a monastic community would, and, and typically this would be done after they've gone through a number of years of their basic training, um, which is roughly equivalent to what we might say high school. And then they would do a three-year retreat. And the first part of that three-year retreat would be completing these Nundra repetitions and so forth. And so they usually spend, it might take anywhere from six to eight, of doing that full time uh, to accomplish that. So that's a lot of hours. And so if if we were to try and uh, do that in just, you know, our 20 minutes a day or whatever it is, an hour a day that we're trying to do, um, we're, you know, we're talking about a lot of days there, a lot of years of, of doing the practice. And that's one of the things that I think becomes a little bit frustrating for people because they want to move on and want to get into the more juicy stuff. And so uh, it can be um, a challenge uh, for people to do that, especially we have jobs and, and we're doing things that uh, a monastic person would not be doing. They have more time available and that's part of their job, so to speak, is is doing those things. So that is one of the ways. There's actually three different basic approaches to this. So one of them is based on numbers. And so that's what we were just talking about is doing it based on numbers. A second one is based on time. And there's several different approaches uh, to doing that. And, and I alluded to one of those of a certain number of hours for each of the different practices um, and adding all of those together, which works out to about the same as does for those in terms of the 100,000 numbers. The third one is based on signs. It's a little bit more difficult, but it's signs of having achieved or mastered each of these different things as, as you move along. We have a tendency, of course, to think that we've done better than we may actually have done uh, as a part of that kind of thing. But it's also something that you would go to the Lama and you would talk with them about what you've experienced and so forth. And then they would make the decision, do you need to continue on with that or have you mastered are the signs, so to speak, of having mastered that? And so you go on to the next one. And so those are the three as a part of that. But I've had other teachers who have also given other kinds of alternatives in terms of how to go about doing this. One of them, for example, uh, said just you know, 
do it as much as you can for a month and then just continue doing it. Make it your main practice for a whole year. You do it for one year and then you can go ahead and start doing some of the other kinds of practices. So that's an alternative to that. Um, another one is if you have a close relationship with a llama, then you can work with them in terms of um, that sign kind of an approach. I don't know how many will. Not most of them. Most of them don't talk about that per se. But actually the approach that I do is that uh, in the classes that we teach, uh, we focus on usually one, a few cases, two of those practices. The preliminary practices, we usually do two sets of two, so a week each of those. And then but when we get into these others, we combine, as, as some uh, situations, combine the refuge and bodhicitta together. A lot of uh, prayers, actually, the first part of it is actual refuge, and then the second part of it is uh, the bodhisattva or bodhicitta part of that. And so they get combined. And so you do that along with the um, frustrations. Uh, but you do it just for one week. And then we go through the whole set of all of those. So it takes about a month and a half to two months for somebody to go through those. And then I say, okay, you do it for the rest of your life every day. And that doesn't mean that it's the only thing that you do, but uh, I give them a very, very concise version of that that could be completed in just a few minutes, actually. And then you start your practice, and that's actually what I do, although I, I do a somewhat more elaborate version than the simple one that I give them. Um, and it becomes then preliminary practice just for what it is that you're doing as your main practice every day. And I... As I mentioned before, I've grown to be very fond of the Nindro practices, and I think that it's something that is invaluable for people to learn and appreciate. Uh, you don't have to make it the only thing that you do, certainly, but it, when you stick it at the beginning of the practice for a short period of time, it sets the stage for everything else that you do, and I think helps make everything else that you do a lot better much more effective. So that that's my approach. Right. Um, unless you have any any further comments or things we didn't get to. Do Nundra. Do Nundra. <laughs> Find somebody where you can uh, get the teachings, learn how to do it, and that can help you along the way. And uh, yes, very, very important part of the practice, or it could become your whole practice as far as that goes. Right. And thanks so much again for, for coming on, Dean. Where where can people find you? Well, I um, am in Tucson, Arizona, and I am the, the head of the AWAM, it's A-W-A-M, AWAM Tibetan Buddhist Institute. And our website is awaminstitute.org. And so you can get a hold of me there and uh my email address is there. You could send me an email if you wanted to and so forth. Um, I have lots of videos available on YouTube. We have classes available online uh, that people can take. We also do classes locally in, in Tucson and so forth. So that's where I am. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much again. And uh, thank, you. thank you, everybody, for watching.